Coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. Anyone can find evidence on whatever they believe in. <laughs> that is the truth of it the is. world that we live in today. Yeah. And for you who are listening, you need to stop Googling the exact thing that is in your head that what you believe in. You need to put it in a very neutral term. I'll give you an, an, an example. If you Google ketogenic diet is bad for you, you'll find all the evidence why it's bad for you. If you Google ketogenic diet is good for you, you'll find <laughs> all the evidence why it's good for you. Right. But instead, why don't you Google the effect of ketogenic diet on X, on your muscles, ketogenic diet on your brain? That effect, that that's one thing I learned during my PhD is the ability to keep an open mind and use the most neutral keywords in Googling scientific evidence. Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grin, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. This week, I interview the research lead of HVMN, Dr. Lat Manser. He shared his knowledge about exogenous ketones and their applications for peak performance, health, and medical therapies, along with high-carb versus low-carb diets, the importance of self-experimentation, advantages of taking ketone IQ, and his one tip to get your body back to what it once was. Really enjoyed my interview with Lat. I hope you do too. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. All right. Welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. My name is Brian Grin, and I have Dr. Lat Matzer on. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Brian. Thanks for coming on. And you are based out of San Francisco, correct? I am. And maybe uh, tell the audience a little bit of background of yourself uh, and sort of how you got into, you know, health, wellness, and, you know, all of the above. Sure. I'm... So I'll start off with um, where I was born and brought up. I was born and bred in Malaysia. I grew up there. I did my high school and everything and A-levels. And then I left the country when I was 20, did my undergraduate in University of Nottingham in the UK. And then right after that, I continued doing my master's also in biotechnology. So my undergrad was in biotechnology. And my master's in biotechnology was from Columbia University in New York. And that was my first time in the States. And then right after that, I got a job in a in clinical trials, in clinical operations in a pharmaceutical company. I worked in New Jersey for half a year before moving to Munich and worked for them full time. Mm-hmm. So I worked for them in the Munich office for a whole year before I went back to school because I was so inspired by the people within the company who are scientists, but also very entrepreneurial. So I thought I want to be like them to be able to communicate science in such a manner that is interesting, that is intriguing, and that is very um, informative to the layman. And I went back to school, um, went back to the UK, because uh, it's much shorter to do a PhD there compared to in the US. Oh, it okay. takes three years. Um, so I did my uh, PhD in physiology, anatomy, and genetics, specializing in metabolism of type 2 diabetic hearts in hypoxia, which is low oxygen at the University of Oxford in the UK. And then um, because of my family side, um, my mom's side has very high prevalence of diabetes. My dad's side has very high prevalence of heart attack. And my late dad passed away from stroke. And before that, he had a heart attack. So because of that 
chronic disease prevalence in my family. I became very and ended up studying, you know, cardiovascular disease and and, and diabetes. Mm. And then after my PhD, I worked in a startup in Singapore that is offering diabetes management program through an ad, uh, through an app, as well as having in-house dietitian to slowly guide people uh, on what to eat and change of lifestyle and all of that. And then a year and a half later, I came out, started my own company around health tech, and then ran that for a year and a half before I found a health via modern nutrition, which is the company I'm working for now. So right now, the hat I am wearing is uh, I oversee all the research collaborations with institutions, researchers. I'm also running the $6 million contract with the Department of Defense, a grant that we got using exogenous ketones to enhance cognitive and physical performance in hypoxia. And again, that's low oxygen. So that's very relevant to the military when it comes to high altitude or deep sea exploration. Well, excellent. Thank you for all that. <laughs> um very interesting work. It's in, um, I've had uh, Dr. Dom Diagostino on, and great, uh, yeah, he he's been on actually a few times, maybe even three times. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm curious. Maybe go a little bit into detail about the, the recent contract, the government contract um, regarding how uh, ketones can can help with um, you know, like you mentioned, brain health. Yeah, sure. Uh, um, so when I joined the company in 2019, it was already granted the phase two of STTR and they already completed the phase one. So phase one is more of a proof of concept. They are not using um, the military personnel. They're using population that is very similar, comparable to military personnel to really try and see what actually is the effect of exogenous ketones on brain health, especially when it comes to hypoxia. So as we know, our brain uses about 20% of uh, total energy that our body uses, right? So given how small the brain is in terms of weight compared to the rest of the body, it sure is using a lot more energy compared to the rest of the body. And when we're talking about using energy, we're talking about respiration. And when we're talking about respiration, we cannot disconnect that with availability of oxygen because whenever we talk about respiration is the generation of atp which is the energy um, currency in the body and the cells and how do you generate atp is via you know a cascade of events glycolysis or beta oxidation for fatty acid goes down the krebs cycle and then goes through our oxidative phosphorylation and through that process, ATP is being generated, but you also need oxygen as the final carrier because then you create you know, um, water and also prevent all these free radicals um, from, from being, being uh, released. So when you are in hypoxic environment, when you're in a hypoxic environment, meaning low oxygen environment, obviously that whole process of respiration is going to get affected and get impacted. And as a result, your brain uses that much energy. And when you are low on oxygen, your brain function is going to get negatively impacted. And we have seen again and again, when you are in low oxygen environment, the cognitive performance drops considerably. And that is also correlated very strongly with oxygen saturation in the brain. Um, now, what we sort of postulate at that point during phase one is that having exogenous ketones in the, the body 
it may actually help mitigate that decline in cognition. And this paper was also published already now. Um, and we did see a mitigation of uh, the decline, which is amazing because what we know is under normoxia, which is normal oxygen uh, environment, the presence of ketones, whether it's via intermittent fasting or ketogenic diet or exogenous ketones, it increases brain activity, it increases brain energy efficiency, it increases interactions between brain regions, i.e. brain network stability. So in this case, when we put these participants in low oxygen environment, the placebo participants got a drop in cognition as they did the cognitive tests. So memory recall, accuracy, um, reaction time, all of that get affected. And then when they are on ketones, that decline in, in cognition actually got mitigated. So that prompted the government to say, hey, this is good enough data to embark on a phase two trial, which actually have a much more elaborate uh, list of tasks that measure you know, all of these metabolic biomarkers, but at the same time, also look closely on the outcome that may be useful for military personnel when they're out in the field. And hypoxia, so it's a condition when the body lacks adequate oxygen. And yep. so is that would be would that mean like someone's underwater or some, uh, something along those lines? Yeah, it could be underwater. It could be in um, high altitude in mountains where you know oxygen availability is lower. Or even if you're talking about just temporary transient hypoxic situations, when you are really doing, when you're pushing yourself, working out, doing anaerobic exercises, your muscle cells are going through hypoxia during that time. So that also really modulates what type of fuel we are utilizing. And it really um, determines what pathway gets upregulated and what pathway gets downregulated, depending on the efficiency of that particular cell in metabolizing that particular substrate. Got it. Okay. And I know you're obviously working with um, HVMN and mm -hmm. they make a drink. I see it in the background there. Ketone IQ. Yes. <clears throat> so explain that a little bit. And wh when I uh, explain the drink and then, and then I'm curious, the exogenous ketones, I'm, I'm assuming you use them sort of targeted at certain times and things like that. Yeah. I just had one shot before. Before um, our recording, I always take it before our podcast. It helps me stay focused and it gives me a lot of clarity when it comes to explanation, when it comes to coherence, when it comes to just speaking in general. Because most of the time, you know, you know this, Brian, you know, when we do podcasts, we don't have second takes. But most of the time we don't do that because we're like, <laughs> it's a whole conversation. We're just going to keep the flow going, right? right? I think that really helps me be in the right, mindset and and in the right zone for that so i'll tell a little bit on the history of hvmn and exogenous ketones to begin with in 2017 hvmn brought to the market the first ever ketone ester and that was the first exogenous ketone that really significantly increased your blood bhb levels beyond two millimolar it's between three to five millimolar before that and I say the first ever exogenous ketone because before that you have had ketone salts and MCTs. Yes, they are ketogenic. Yes, they increase blood BHP level, but most of the time they don't go further 
uh, beyond one millimolar. So ketone ester was the first exogenous ketone that was brought into the market in 2017 that raises it up to three to five millimolar. Fast forward three years, um, more research come, came out and a lot more focus um, was put on exogenous ketones because while we see a lot of benefits with ketogenic diet, there are certain situations where it doesn't permit the ketogenic diet or the ketogenic diet is not as effective in raising um, ketone levels, either due to medication, due to lifestyle, due to, due to genetics. That way you can just drink a ketone and have a predictable elevation of blood ketone levels and you know where it's going to go and you can easily measure certain outcomes in clinical trials when you're given that sort of constant, um, consistent variable. Um, so then in 2000, I believe 2020, we stopped producing ketone esters. Uh, there are a couple of reasons. And then in, in, in you know, early last year, 2022, we launched Ketone IQ, which is also another form of exogenous ketone. Now, what is ketone ester? The three main ketone bodies that we produce in our bodies are acetoacetate, acetone, and beta-hydroxybutyrate. Beta-hydroxybutyrate or BHB is the main ketone body that is used for metabolism and being transported around the, the body in the blood. So whenever people measure blood ketone levels, that's a BHB that they're measuring. Right. Ketone esters are essentially a BHB molecule bound with a R13-butane-diol molecule. That is the first ketone monoester that the HVMA came out. By now, there are a lot more ketone esters. Ketone ester is just a chemical term, essentially. It's a ketone bound with something in an ester bond. And usually that something is R13-butane-diol. So we have acetoacetate diester, we have uh, C6-diester now, uh, all bound with butane-diol. And if you notice, all these things, all these molecules have one thing in common. Half of it, or one third of it, is R13-butane-diol. And that is exactly what ketone ester, uh, sorry, that's exactly what ketone IQ is. It is a chirally pure R13-butane-diol. So the reason why we swapped over to butane-diol, um, are three reasons actually. One, it's cheaper to produce. Two, it is uh, easier to do R&D on the flavoring because if you have tried ketone ester, it is extremely bitter and it doesn't taste good. And for people who are using it for athletic purposes, like one dose, two doses, when they go training, that's fine. But for people who want to do it on a daily basis for metabolic health purposes, it's a bit difficult to swallow to, to you know do it every day. And then the third reason is that some studies actually came out saying that between two millimolar and four millimolar blood BHB level in terms of performance, the oxidation level of ketones doesn't increase that much. Zero to two, it increases quite a lot, but then two to four has diminishing return, essentially. And then also by spiking your blood BHB to that high of a level, three to five millimolar within half an hour, it may actually be more detrimental than it is beneficial. Because one paper published by McCarthy, uh, they saw an, in well, overall, across the board, they have seen an increase in acidity, in blood acidity, when you spike blood BHB that high. But then this particular paper actually in, um, correlated the increase in, in blood acidity with increased cardiorespiratory uh, stress biomarkers, 
i.e. heart rates um, and increased rate of perceived exertion. So you feel like you're working harder because you're trying really hard to expel out all the extra carbon dioxide, uh, you know, to really reduce the acidity level, but then you're not getting an improvement in performance. They didn't do worse, but you have no improvement, but then you're you you're feeling like you're working harder. So then RN3-butindiol goes through your liver and gets converted to BHB. So your liver is a gatekeeper that has all the feedback from the rest of your body saying that, hey, if I have enough energy here, let's convert this BDO into BHB at a much slower rate. That way you won't be able to spike your blood BHB to that high of a level. And then because of that, it's a much more slow releasing mechanism, which means you can also stay in ketosis or stay above one millimolar for a much longer period. Okay. Thank you for that explanation. <laughs> um, I'm curious. Uh, so this is something that individuals can use, obviously, on a daily basis, perhaps. Um, do you find that um, it's important to perhaps come in and out of ketosis? Um, I remember Dr. Don Bianacino mentioned that uh, he thought that he wasn't a huge fan of like long-term ketosis. What are your thoughts on that? I think depend when you say long-term of ketosis, I think it really depends on what is the method, right? But if you're using exogenous ketones, you will go in and out of ketosis because the presence of glucose in your body will spike insulin and insulin will stop ketogenesis from happening from, from the liver. So that's fine. So for me, I think some form of ketones in your body um, sort of consistently would be better than none at all. Um, and I do think if people are doing ketogenic diet for long term and they do, they are seeing um, a lot of benefits from it, then keep doing that. However, um, I have had a lot of guests that can come on to HVMN podcast, the Health Value Modern Nutrition podcast that I host. Um, they are doctors who have experienced patients who initially get a lot of benefit from, say, ketogenic diet or any form of diet. And then as they go on, you know, one year, two years, they start to see diminishing return or they're not losing weight or they're getting some form of dysfunction because the body, one, the body is getting used to it and two, it may lack certain um, nutrients from other food source that you are excluding um, completely. So... And, and and another doctor, Dr. Daniel Pumper, um, he was a guest as well. And he spoke of the feeling, the good feeling that you feel when you switch diet is not necessarily the diet in and of itself, but it could be the switch of your microbiome. It's the stress, the oxidative, uh, no, the uh, hormesis, which is the stress that you're putting your body through, especially your microbiome that is producing that effect. It's, it's an adaptation process to a new environmental change in the microbiome. And therefore you are experiencing that good feeling or the stress feeling, depending, you know, in the first few days, the adaptation period, you probably don't feel as well. And then as you adapt to it, you feel better. And then, you know, you, the stress will make you do things that you would normally do, uh, you would not normally do uh, when you are on the diet that you've been on for the past two, three, five years. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I've heard con some conflicting things regarding, you know, long-term ketosis. Um, I've had, uh, I just had, I don't know if you know Danny Roddy, but he's part of like this bioenergetic viewpoint where um, ketosis can raise your stress hormones, uh, adrenaline and noradrenaline. And um, 
essentially you're, you know, when you switch from glucose to fatty acid metabolism, this can happen. And, um, he, he would call it more of, this is like using fatty acids almost as like a survival, um, viewpoint. Um, you know, and so it, I just was curious your thoughts around that. No, I think, I think it really depends on the metabolic flexibility of that individual. Mm-hmm. I don't think we can ever generalize and say, doing keto diet for X number of months for three months is better than doing six months or it's, sure. you know, three months is better than doing two weeks. Um, I think it really depends on the person's metabolic flexibility. And I think, you know, people have been calling for the longest time, but also it's also the hardest thing to do, which is personalized nutrition and personalized uh, lifestyle changes. It's very difficult while we can rely on studies and clinical trials on certain conclusion and certain data, know that every scientific study have their own flaws and they have their own limitations and it can generalize so far um, on, on what we should do or what we should be eating and what we shouldn't be eating. But at the same time, if your genetic makeup is different, if your lifestyle fundamentally is different, you're from different parts of the world, you're going through different stresses of the environments and different factors in the environment, in the water, in all of that, really dial into what is good for you. So I always tell people that you are the PhDs of your body. Nobody knows your body better than you yourself. So go out there and we've got a whole lifetime. Like I see my body as a life, life as a science experiment for the rest of my life, right? I have a whole lifetime to trial and error see what works for me, and then go back to the drawing board if I need to, adjust as needed, and then try again. Because that's what we do as humans. We, we, that's how we progress. That's well how we advance technology. We try on ourselves. Um, while it is great to think that, you know, there is somebody out there who is quote unquote an expert and tell me exactly what I need to do. <laughs> I mean, you can pay people for that for, you know, nutritionist or personal trainer and they can hone down what is, you know, as personalized as possible for you. But ultimately, do you feel good about it? You know, you, you need to know why are they telling you this? Why are they recommending certain foods for you? And you need to know that I think, Part of why I'm running HVMN podcast is for that particular reason, is to really put information and knowledge out there so that people can make their own informed decisions and people can learn more about what their bodies are doing and how they're feeling. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I always talk about on my podcast, like self-experimentation. Mm. Like, because uh, you'll uh, you'll have one guy on your podcast who's a carnivore and, you know, he's loving it, this and that. He's done it for a while. And then you have another guy who's the complete opposite, right? So it's like, you do have to sort of find what works for you. And, and, you know, maybe what type of, would you recommend any certain like blood markers or tests or do, do you, um, any, when you do tests on yourself, do you do like certain blood tests or like DEXA scans or things like that, just to see how, how certain foods affect you? I would love to, uh, (laughs) especially with the with the technology that we have these days, it's so, so easy to 
test, you know, I think continuous um, glucose monitoring is a very good one to really look into what kind of food spike your sugar. And then as an assumption, you can assume that it also spikes your insulin. And what we don't want is a constant or consistent elevation of insulin because there's a lot of studies are pointing towards the consistent elevation of insulin is actually causing um, all these different chronic diseases. Um, DEXA scan, obviously, that is also very helpful and informative. Obviously, that's also quite expensive for people as well. And certain places might not have it. Um, I think sleep quality, that's one thing that a lot of people don't or, or have overlooked. Um, it is really amazing how much sleep quality affects the rest of our our waking hours. Um uh, at you know the quality of my workout, the quality of my work, of my cognitive performance while I'm doing podcasts, for example, um, look at your sleep quality using Aura Ring, using Whoop or whatever uh, wearables that are easily accessible, and from that try and fine tune what your daily habits are and see what can you do to improve it if it's not ideal. Now, do you measure your? Um, do you do blood? measurement for your minimal for ketones uh after uh, you, do you have, yeah do you... yeah so um that's a great question so a lot of people was like oh if i if i take ketone iq if i take exogenous ketones do i have to measure my blood ketones all the time uh the answer is no uh you don't need to measure every time you drink it um right. you can measure first few times just knowing that how your body reacts to it and how sort of the 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 miracle the the good thing about exogenous ketone is the predictability of your blood ketone levels because if you're intermittent fasting or if you're on ketogenic diet it really depends on your body on your activity level if you're exercising you might produce more ketones if you're fasting longer you produce more ketones but then you don't know where the level is the thing with exo- with the thing is with exogenous ketones is that you can predict roughly what's the range that your body is going to going to be at in terms of blood bhb levels so you know, feel free to test the first few times just to see, you know, does the product work? Does my body react well to it? And then after that, you can pretty much feel subjectively uh, different uh, when you are on ketone IQ, for example. Uh, so you don't need to, I don't, I don't measure it all, all, all that often, really. Mm. Do you use it like sometimes pre-workout? I do. I, um, See that's the perk of being a research lead of HVMN. I I get access to ketone IQ, so I I use it before podcasts. Um, I do use it before workout, and um, most of the time I do use it post workout as well. Interesting. And so, <clears throat> what what are some of the things? What the biggest things that you've learned over the last few years? And have you changed your stance in anything? Just be affiliated with you know this company and. Uh, just from all your research. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you 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 point this out, Brian. <laughs> and and I, I I talked about this quite a bit as well on on our podcast. Is that science is all about change. Science is about learning new things and changing your views. It's not about holding on to your ego and your pride and thinking that just because you admit that you were wrong, everything come 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 crumbling crumbling down. Right. It's it's just not it doesn't work that way and and not not a single human no matter how much of an expert you are can be always right so for example one thing that i definitely fundamentally changed was my view on fat because when i was doing my phd it was you know we i i created a type 2 diabetic rat model 
using high fat diet. But the high fat diet has about 60% calories coming from fat, but still quite high, about 20 to 30% coming from carbs. Okay. So it's essentially quite high fat, but then also quite a lot of carbs and very low protein. And that's is com- in combination with a drug called STZ streptozotocin that uh, partially uh, it, uh, disabled the pancreatic beta cells to secrete insulin. So that's sort of mimic the type 2 diabetic phenotype. Since then, you know, during that time, I was like, okay, fat is really bad. I have had a, a in my undergrad, I remember a whole year because I grew up overweight all my life too. So um, when I first lost all those weight in my second year in my undergrad, I basically went on the whole year just eating um, very, very low fat, just high protein, low carbs, and low, basically like Atkins diet, right? And I lost all those weight, you know, high protein, low fat, low carbs, and, and essentially probably a very, you know, um, high deficit in, in in calories as well. So obviously I'll lose weight. And then I started exercising. And I thought fat is the culprit because I was studying cardiovascular disease and da 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 and all this blood clots and atherosclerosis and arteriosclerosis, all of this. And then I joined HVMN and then I started looking more closely into ketogenic diet, what sort of um, difference ketogenic diet is doing to, say, Alzheimer's patients, um, to diabetic patients, even um, work by Verta Health and Jeff Wallach and the Steve Finney of the world, and how they are reversing diabetics with high-fat diet, uh, well, ketogenic diet, high-fat, really, really low-carb diet. Um, But then there are also other school of thought where they use high carbs and very low low fat diet and they are reversing diabetes <laughs> yeah, too right, right? Yeah. so like which is which and and to the listeners who are hearing this like i can tell you like both ways are viable right it's essentially the access uh, the the access in in calories that is causing the body to go haywire you know it doesn't matter hmm. if it's a lot of carbs a lot of a lot of fat yes the quality for sure for sure it, it affects it like seed oil for example has been shown again and you, again yeah, it has yeah. been shown again and again <laughs> really drives inflammation and all of that but right. also seed oil and all these bad quality fats or bad quality processed carbs in combination with high calorie intake now you have a recipe for disaster right so it's not just calories it's not just seed oil it's it's a combination of everything it's a lifestyle disease so essentially is is everything that you put into your body um that's the difference so that was one change that i have definitely made very clearly um to be more open minded when it comes to fats being good for you or bad for you or ldl or seed oil versus you know omega 3 versus omega 6 um, you know, which like those nuance is what we scientists are now slowly finding out, but then it'll just, it'll take even much, much longer for the public to find out because the mainstream media is not publishing these. Now, yes, you can Google it, but then if you don't know what it is, then you don't know what to Google. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because PUFAs are, have, have, I think like just being in the health world have come up a lot. Um, Dr. Ray Pete, I don't know if you know who that is, uh, talks a lot about how PUFA 
obviously causes inflammation, decreases cell cellular energy production, um, and then how you know saturated fats are are really the the things that you should look to be implementing into your diet um, and try to um, obviously not eliminate altogether. You can't PUFAs are are everywhere. <laughs> You right. Know, um, but as much as you can, you can um, um, try to try to get them out of your diet because they're pretty much in every food almost. <laughs> Unless you're, I always say, the best recipe is cooking for yourself because then you know exactly what's going in your food. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think, and then there are also other studies that point towards um, the ratio of omega three, omega six. Like omega three is good for you. Omega six is the you know the bad ones. But then supplementing omega-3 may not be the best option you should get it from whole foods and right. all that you know you have to like unpack that as well so <laughs> it, you can go down this sort of a rabbit, rabbit hole yeah. yes yeah and and you could pretty much find an answer that you want to find to some degree right like i mean you can probably find a diet for anything um but 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 i like that you point out that you can get results and, I, and, th- and this was sort of a, a viewpoint that i've changed over the years with having a higher carb diet as opposed to, I think people just thought, oh, well, I go low carb, it heals everything. And it's not necessarily true. There's a lot of other factors, endotoxin, gut, you know, gut health. Um, and I think that's why fasting actually helps a lot of people is because it sort of takes you away from maybe these gut stressors that could be causing a lot of, you know, inflammation and, um, and just causing a lot of, um, you know, endotoxin and things like that, that could be causing the issues. Yeah, for sure. I think, um, I mean, hence why I'm still fasting right now. I haven't eaten anything yet. It's almost 3 p.m. I just had a ketone <laughs> IQ. Um, also, because, you know, for work, I've been having back-to-back calls and stuff. So I haven't had time. You've been busy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also, uh, I'm glad that you pointed out, like, anyone can find evidence on whatever they believe in. <laughs> that is the truth of it the is. world that we live in today. Yeah. And for you who are listening, you need to stop Googling the exact thing that is in your head that what you believe in. You need to put it in a very neutral term. I'll give you an, an, an example. If you Google ketogenic diet is bad for you, you'll find all the evidence why it's bad for you. If you Google ketogenic diet is good for you, you'll find <laughs> all the evidence why it's good for you. Right. But instead, why don't you Google the effect of ketogenic diet on X, on your muscles, ketogenic diet on your brain? That effect, that that's one thing I learned during my PhD is the ability to keep an open mind and use the most neutral keywords in Googling scientific evidence. Because mm-hmm. nowadays, and also, you know, obviously look at the the source of the information that you're looking at as well. Like, you know, is it peer-reviewed right. published papers or is it just another blog post by a company that is selling stuff that is related to it? It's like most of these articles when it says, X supplement is good for you. And then right at the end, it's like, oh, this is the best supplement that we have for you, actually. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's the same thing. You know, you don't need to go anywhere. You can just put an order in right now. Um, look at the conflict of interest uh, to see whether the science is actually backed up by substantial um, rigorous research, or is it just a blog post that sounds very good, but too good to be true? Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um so where where do you think the future's heading as far as you know with you guys with your company um and you, what's on the horizon i mean go ahead and i guess you can answer that um and i have some thoughts on it as well what do you think yeah sure um i think right now um 
from the research end, I can tell you, we've got two grants that are in the pipeline right now. One is using ketone IQ to look at um, mitigating the mid to long-term effect of traumatic brain injury, TBI. So this is for the military. And then another grant is to optimize waking cycle um, and minimize the sleep cycle using ketone IQ as well. Uh, this is uh, in conjunction with Washington State University. So we'll hopefully find out the decision on the those grant applications in April. And uh, in terms of on the commercial side, I think right now we're really pushing for a lot of education, a lot of awareness and knowledge. And we recently just partnered with um, Dr. Andrew Huberman um, on his Huberman Lab podcast so that way more people are now hearing about ketone IQ and people are curious, okay, what is ketone IQ? What is ketone to begin with? And then and then let's start a conversation, right? And we are always looking to improve. And this is not, you know, by all means, um, and I'll be all solution as well. Like I, we are looking to improve to the next version of Ketone IQ um, that could be even better. It could be cheaper. That could be more scalable. That can be more accessible to people, especially if they are they are taking it on a daily basis for whatever reason, for cognition, for Alzheimer's, for epilepsy, uh, for diabetes, for metabolic health. Um, really positioning ketone as a fourth macronutrient. I think that's really interesting point of view uh, in the sense that we've got carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. And when protein supplementation came out, you know, whey protein, you know, decades ago, and I would assume it probably faced the same questions and same intrigued and same, same sort of scrutiny as ketones are right now, right? Um, but now people are realizing, okay, I don't, get enough protein intake in my food sources. So I'm going to supplement it with whey protein powder. And that works very, very well, has been proven and studies have been proven in many sports as well, recovery, all of that. So I hope that one day ketones can be recognized, you know, when we make it taste better, like whey protein. Uh, yeah, I was curious. I, I saw you do a shot with Ben Azadi. I watched some of that podcast. Yeah. And I was like, God, I don't know if he's enjoying it. It doesn't. I have to, you know, full disclaimer, <laughs> full transparency. Yeah. It's not the best tasting drink. Right. Um, you know, there's, there's, we say it around the company. It tastes like it works, um, <laughs> but but know that it tastes way way better than the first generation, which is the ketone ester. Um, so we are still working on flavor uh, research and development for sure. And um, a lot of people actually got used to the taste already, surprisingly. They're like, actually, I don't mind the taste. I was like, okay, that's great. Um, <laughs> so I think looking from that point of view is like having this macronutrient supplementation because it, it is calories, right? It produces ATP. It gives you the fuel that you need, that your body needs to produce uh, ATP. And you are not getting you know, ketones from anywhere else uh, unless you're on a ketogenic diet or you're on high fat, you know, low carb diet, where you still have to convert those fat into ketones via your liver. And a lot of people argue, like, yeah, I can, you know, produce my own ketones for free. Yeah, true. But then if you're going to consume the calories anyway, um, this is a direct ketone consumption, and it's only 70 calories. And if you can't afford it, you know, granted, like, you know, most of these people, they're like, oh, it's so expensive. Or like, if you can afford it, then I don't see why not have that direct access to um to ketones rather than 
you know, having having diet and then gives you the flexibility as well to not have to stick to a strict regime mm-hmm. while um, being able to utilize both glucose and ketones. Actually, recently, we just completed a study with the University of North Georgia looking at anaerobic exercise and ketone IQ. And this mm-hmm. has never been done before because as we know in metabolism, when it comes to anaerobic ex- exercise or intense exercise, glucose will always triumph over other any other substrates because it's the fast energy that glucose is providing that mm-hmm. puts you through these intense exercises. We're seeing really, really surprising results here because given ketone IQ and carbs together, it's pushing the average power and the average peak power across the board for these participants in uh, really intense exercise. So I just reviewed the manuscript yesterday uh, and we are submitting it soon. So I can't give up too much, but we are seeing an, a huge increase in power output as well as lowering of fatigue levels when they're on ketones and carbs. So mm-hmm. um, that, that might prompt us to look into metabolism of ketones uh, especially when it comes to performance in a slightly different lens, uh, because all this while we thought this could only be useful for endurance athletes, because endurance athletes may utilize fat more as they go for a much, much longer race or much longer uh, exercise bout, then, um, you know, glucose will be less useful because then you'll be, you'll be depleting your glycogen already anyway. So you're, you're tapping into your fat stores. But for these participants using ketone IQ and carbs for anaerobic exercises and seeing an improvement in um, the power output and decrease in fatigue may be very interesting uh, yeah. for athletes like CrossFitters, uh, bodybuilders, uh, powerlifters, um, sprinters, that sort of area. Yeah. And um, I'm a big routine guy, so I'm just curious, uh, Lad, what what are your routines uh, like in there in San Francisco, morning, evening? Um, obviously drinking a drink, ketone, uh, IQ is one thing, but what other things, uh, do you implement into your life as far as routines? See, um, you know, me, like many, many, many humans in this world, I'm not perfect, you know, so <laughs> do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I mean, I try to try to really improve my, my daily routine and I, me as well. I am a routine person. And whenever I go travel and my routine gets haywire, it gets really stressful for me. So what I like, you know, wake up in the morning. I actually don't have my ketone IQ in the morning. I have it right before my podcast, depending on when my, when my podcast is. So that's usually my first um, shot of ketone IQ. Um, I'll, I'll work throughout the day um, until, you know, five, six or whatever. And then I'll have my pre-workout ketone IQ. I'll hit the gym. Um, I'll focus a lot more on weightlifting and then I'll finish off with either high intensity interval training or a longer, uh, longer period of just uh, steady, steady state, uh, low intensity or medium intensity cardio. And then after that, I'll come home, I'll have my, um, uh, protein shake and my post-workout meal or whatever. Um, and then I'll have a ketone IQ later before, right before bed. Uh, what I am trying to implement into my daily routine right now that I'm struggling with <laughs> is um, my steps really, because I work from home and work remotely and the, my gym is like a block away. So my, <laughs> you, need a dog. Is, you need I a dog. Know, I, 
There you go. But, I just, I just, I just fixed your problem. Uh, yeah, but, but added a lot more because you know when I travel, I have to uh, you know, look for like daycare and all <laughs> that stuff. So, and I travel quite a bit for work as well. So uh, that's mm. going to be a headache. Gotcha. Well, I have two dogs, and they get me out every morning. So oh, there um, you go. <laughs> um, you know what? I I would recommend if is like. I lo- like the morning walk. Like if you can, you know, even if it's like 20 minutes, right? Like I think that can make, that's a good time to add it. Sounds yeah, like. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, like it's not because I'm already, you know, working out like quite intensely in the right. gym. It's just adding that, that walk in, I think would really help switch my metabolism around. Cause I think my body is getting used to it. And no matter how many times I swap the um, training programs or, or nutrition, there's only so much you can do um, mm-hmm, right. and your body is still kind of, it's the plasticity of our bodies, of our metabolism. It wants to keep, keep it in the comfort zone where it's, it's like nice a ho- and homeostasis, right? Yeah, yeah like, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And like, uh, I just had, I just interviewed, um, God, I'm drawing a blank on her name, but you know, she was big into morning walks too. Just the, 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 the fact of your eyes seeing the sun in yeah. the morning and with your circadian rhythm and, um, you know, getting that nice cortisol response to to get the day going. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you get a cortisol increase, you get the decrease in melatonin, you really like wake yourself up. Um, that's something that I definitely struggle with most of my life. Um, I'm because I'm not a morning person. No, <laughs> that's that's just the honest, you know, honest <laughs> truth. Um, some of us, some of us are, some of us aren't. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I, you know, it doesn't help that during my student times I game quite a bit. So, I mean, mm. usually gamers are. Oh, uh, no- nocturnal people. <laughs> I hear you. Um, well, this was great, Lat. Um, I'm I'm looking forward to coming on your podcast in a few months. So that'll be, um, that'll be good. And uh, uh, where's the best place for people to find you? They can find me on all social media platform at Lat Mansour, L A T T M A N S O R, and you can find HVMN at HVMN. Um, on all platforms as well and do check out the health via modern nutrition podcast with dr lat mansour yeah, yeah. on all um major platforms spotify apple Podcasts, you name it and we are also on youtube uh go have a listen if you guys like it leave a review and feedback very much welcome yeah and i'll put um links in the show notes for for all those and i, I wanted to ask you one more question that i asked all my guests is if you were going to give advice to an individual, maybe they were 40 plus, 50 plus years old, and they were looking to maybe get their body back to what it once was maybe 10, 15 years ago, what one tip would you give that individual? You know what? I, I would love that tip because I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. You know, I'm turning 38 this year. Oh, you're young. <laughs> you said, you know, you're in their 40s. So I'm, 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 I'm getting there. I think, I think start because by that time, we already know quite a lot about our bodies. So you know roughly what works for you. But what usually gets in the way is the consistency. So start slow, take one step at a time, change one thing at a time. Because at that age as well, if you do too many things and stress your body out too much, it may actually break your metabolism instead of shifting it towards the positive. Mm -hmm. If you're doing ketogenic diet, calorie restriction, intermittent fasting, and taking taking you know, and doing hit high intensity interval training, you're gonna break your body because you won't have time to recover. The whole goal is I always believe what doesn't kill us make us stronger, right? 
So you want to push yourself to that level, but not break it. Let it recover. Push yourself to that level again. Let it recover. And then your body then knows the system. Okay, now I know he's going to push me to the verge of breaking. So I need to create stronger muscle. I need to create more muscle fibers. I need to shed more fat. I need to lose more weight because I'm running longer and I need that, you know, less resistance. Um, So then the next time this person, this owner of the body pushed me to that, you know, level of, of being broken, then I can adapt to it better and faster. And within weeks, you'll see much, much better adaptation. And then you just ramp it up from there. It's always the starting point and then getting the consistency. A lot yeah. of times we get a, a surge of motivation and then we push ourselves and we feel great for the first week and then everything aches and then we skip for a, for a week and then it, got, it gets comfortable right? and we take another week off and then we do that again and we're not seeing results and then we get demotivated. I would rather do three times a week. Right you know, get consistent, go up to five and then go up longer time, shorter rests and all that. Well, and, and I think it's a good point. I mean, consistency is so key. I mean, that's something that I've been blessed to, to be doing for 20 years. And it, there's there's not like a magic pill and it's not going to happen all at once. And if you try to do it all at once, like you said, then you're sort of getting away from the recovery. And the recovery is just as important as the actual working out itself or whatever you're implementing into your life. And yeah. so I agree. I, I always talk about doing one thing at a time. And um, and once you build that habit, then maybe you can stack on one more thing. But uh, that, you know, consistency, there's nothing that that'll outdo that. Yeah. And like you said, there is no one miracle pill. There is no one secret advice that everyone is holding back. And, and <laughs> you know, you just need to find that secret and everything will go hunky-dory. It doesn't work like that. You need to work on your foundation. And there is no a there's no cookie cutter um, that you can just fit into a mold. Like you need to work on what works for you the yeah. best, and what's what works for your schedule and your timetable and your lifestyle with your families and you know all of that. You need to fit it in for yourself, and then from there say, okay, this fits very well, and then I can do it consistently, and then you'll see results without even like trying. Yeah. Well, Lath, this was great. Um, I look forward to seeing you in a, f- a few months. And hopefully by then, maybe you'll be like, Brian, hey, you know what? I've been doing morning walks. You changed my life. Right. <laughs> that would be, be a good follow-up, wouldn't it? Yeah. Hey, I'm going to hold you accountable. So when we talk you go. In, in April. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for listening to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I understand there are millions of other podcasts out there and you've chosen to listen to mine and I appreciate that. Check out the show notes at briangrin.com for everything that was mentioned in this episode. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or family member that's looking to get their body back to what it once was. Thanks again and have a great day.